This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question asks so I can analyze the Netflix special, The Confession Killer. This was a series that described the life of convicted killer Henry Lee Lucas. They also looked at certain members of law enforcement. They talked to some of the families of murder victims and other people tied to his case. Henry Lee Lucas, of course, was a real person, as were all the people featured in the series. So just a reminder, I'm not diagnosing anybody, only speculating about what could be happening in a case like this. I will add the references to the sources that I used to the description of this video. Now, many of those references are really from Henry Lee Lucas himself, right? Many of the references featured interviews with Lucas, which of course is a problem because he seemed to have a poor relationship with the truth, right? So even though many of the references seem pretty good, if they relied on Lucas, that's a problem. The story of Henry Lee Lucas is fascinating for a variety of reasons, not only his mental health and personality characteristics, but those of law enforcement, specifically the law enforcement officers that believed his confessions and those who appeared to have conspired with him to create those confessions. His story is a story of pathological lying, confirmation bias, illogical behavior, manipulation, corruption, retaliation, narcissism, and a variety of other worrisome behavior. Again, not just on the part of Lucas, but on the part of other people as well. So first I'll take a look at the timeline, then I'll analyze what could be going on in terms of mental health and personality characteristics for Lucas, and also some of the other people involved in this case. So first the timeline. So we see that Henry Lee Lucas was born in 1936 in Virginia. He was the youngest of seven children. Both his parents were alcoholics. His father manufactured alcohol illegally, and his mother was a prostitute. The mother appeared to be particularly vicious in terms of her treatment of Lucas. She allegedly assaulted him frequently, made him watch while she had sex with various men, and forced him to cross-dress, although that would be put to an end by teachers who reported that activity to law enforcement. Now, he was beaten with a wooden plank by his mother when he was eight years old. He spent three days in a coma as a result of that assault. When he was 10 years old, he lost the use of his left eye. He was in a fight with his brother where his eye was injured, and subsequently it became infected. It had to be replaced with a glass eye. When he was in sixth grade, he ran away from home, and it's possible that at this time, he killed his first victim. He would have been around 15 at this time. The possible victim was a 17-year-old female who disappeared in March of 1951. But there's no way of knowing this for sure. He confessed to this crime, but of course recanted later. This was a popular pattern that we see with Henry Lee Lucas. In 1954, he was convicted of several counts of burglary. He spent about five years in prison. After he was released, he went to live with his half-sister in Michigan. In January of 1960, we see that Lucas's mother was visiting him in Michigan. And Lucas and his mother got into an argument about him returning to Virginia to take care of her. He stabbed her to death in the midst of that argument. Now, Lucas claimed it was self-defense, but he was convicted and sentenced to 20 to 40 years in prison, 
but he was released in 1970, just 10 years later. About a year after this, he was convicted of attempted kidnapping. The victims were three girls. He was sentenced to three and a half years. After he was released from this sentence, he moved to Pennsylvania and was married to a woman named Betty Crawford. That lasted about two years, but Lucas had to leave after he was accused of assaulting her two daughters. He started drifting through various states at this point, mostly in the South, eventually ending up with a man named Otis O'Toole in Florida. O'Toole had a niece named Frida Powell, otherwise known as Becky Powell. At this time, she would have been about 10 years old. Lucas worked with O'Toole at a roofing company from 1979 to 1981. During this time, he allegedly committed over 100 murders. Some of them were with O'Toole, but again, we see that Lucas recanted. He claims that he fell in love with Becky, and they moved to Texas, where they ended up caring for a woman named Kate Rich. In August of 1982, in Texas, we see that Lucas killed Becky Powell. Three weeks later, he killed Kate Rich. In June of 1983, he was arrested by a Texas Ranger for illegally possessing a firearm. Lucas claimed that he was abused by the Texas Rangers and ended up confessing because of that to the murders of Powell and Rich. He led the Rangers to the place where he allegedly killed those two victims, and in each place the police found bone fragments. The remains they found were human, but they were never identified as belonging to the victims. So at this point we see that Henry Lee Lucas has an extensive criminal history, including three homicides. There seems to be no doubt about the homicide committed against his mother, right? He clearly killed his mother, and he probably committed the other two homicides as well, Powell and Rich. While pleading guilty to these two murders in court, we see that Lucas announced that he had committed over 100 murders. After this, we see that Williamson County Sheriff Jim Boutwell sets up a task force led by the Texas Rangers that was supposed to facilitate access to Lucas by other law enforcement professionals. So the task force really wasn't designed to investigate, just to arrange interviews, essentially, with these other law enforcement agencies that are trying to close cold cases or cases where they're struggling to find leads. So essentially, law enforcement officers could visit Lucas, get a confession, and close cases. And this is what happened. Lucas eventually confessed to 213 unsolved murders. One of those murders he confessed to was that of Deborah Jackson. At that time, she was known as Orange Socks because there was no other identity, just the fact that she was wearing orange socks when her body was found. Now, this was a capital murder case that resulted in the death penalty for Lucas. Eventually, the Texas governor at that time, George Bush, commuted the sentence for Lucas. So he ended up dying in prison in 2001 of heart failure. He was 64 years old. So now taking a look at the mental health and personality characteristics here for Henry Lee Lucas. Now the problem with the pathological lying that we see with Lucas is there's no real way to know the truth. It seems fairly clear he had a terrible history of abuse, terrible boundaries, impulse control problems, a tendency to commit criminal acts, and again, he probably committed at least three homicides. What was going on all this time in terms of mental health and personality? Well, we see some evidence that there was disorganized thinking, and in some of the interviews we see with Lucas, he reports experiences that appear to be consistent with delusions and hallucinations. Also, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia several times while in custody. So it seems likely that he had schizophrenia or at least had some of the symptoms of schizophrenia. He certainly seemed to have alcohol use disorder. 
although technically when he was in custody, it would have been a remission because he wouldn't have had access to alcohol. But either way, substance use disorder, specifically alcohol use disorder, seemed to be a factor. There's been a lot of speculation about psychopathy. He seems to have had features of both factor one and factor two psychopathy, and of course both are associated with criminality. Now, both factor one and factor two psychopathy are divided into two parts. With factor one, the two parts are interpersonal and affective. So on the interpersonal side, we see that Lucas appeared to have a grandiose sense of self, eventually claiming to have killed over 3,000 people, including Jimmy Hoffa. We see that he had pathological lying. This seems pretty clear. He actually confessed to fictitious crimes, and he admitted that he lied. He had superficial charm, although this feature I don't think is quite as strong as some of the others, and he was manipulative. This seems pretty clear. I think he was also being manipulated, though, too. So he was manipulative and being taken advantage of at the same time. Now, looking at the factor one affective side, we see he has a lack of guilt, shallow affect, and certainly a lack of empathy. The question really becomes, did he have the failure to accept responsibility for actions? Interestingly, it appears that he accepted responsibility for everything, even crimes he didn't commit. But there are other times when he failed to take responsibility, so I think he still qualifies in terms of this characteristic. Now, moving over to the factor two side, we see this is sometimes called sociopathy or secondary psychopathy. This factor is more associated with antisocial personality disorder. And again, it's divided into two parts, lifestyle and antisocial. On the lifestyle side, he seems to have sensation-seeking. We see evidence of a parasitic lifestyle. He didn't seem to have realistic long-term goals. He was impulsive and irresponsible. So all the traits from lifestyle. On the antisocial side of factor two, he clearly had early behavioral problems, juvenile delinquency, poor behavioral controls, and criminal versatility. Now, in terms of revocation of conditional release, this is one of the traits of factor two Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, hi True Crime, Crime fans. We're the co-hosts of She Goes by Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while, first in Amy's book of poetry, Doe, and then in Vanessa's documentary, She. But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes by Jane. And each week, we'll be joined by a special guest who will read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker, along with authors like Louise Penny and Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes by Jane wherever you get your podcasts, or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com 
or wherever fine podcasts are found. Antisocial. We see that he did actually escape from jail briefly in 1957 while serving time for burglary. That would probably count as meeting this characteristic, although of course technically it wasn't conditional release. Again, he escaped. But the idea here is that somebody doesn't follow the rules of being punished, right? So he didn't follow the rules of being in prison. So essentially, it appears as though Lucas has all the characteristics of both factor one and factor two psychopathy. And this is actually highly unusual. Usually somebody, if they are psychopathic, will lean more strongly to factor one or factor two. Many have traits from both, but again, one kind of really stands out. And here we don't really see that. He seems to be somehow in both categories at the same time. It's my guess, though, that Lucas is more on the factor two side. So again, we see all the characteristics met, but I think he fits more strongly with antisocial personality disorder, with sociopathy, than he does with factor one psychopathy. Now, psychopathy also has some overlap with narcissism. We see several narcissistic characteristics with Lucas, not just what we see from the overlap with psychopathy, like manipulation, lack of empathy, and a grandiose sense of self, but also with other narcissistic traits, like believing oneself to be special or unique, resistance to criticism, and fantasies of success and power. So we not only see psychopathy, but some narcissism as well. So was Lucas really a serial killer? I think in looking at all the evidence, to me at least, it seems pretty clear he did commit several murders. But was he the serial killer that many people believed that he was? Did he kill over 200 people, or even much more than that? I don't think he did. I think the best evidence points to this idea that Lucas was lying to satisfy the demands of the police, to get better treatment from them, to be famous, or to be wanted. Or it could have been all these things. He was never liked or recognized for anything positive in his life, so maybe it seemed like a good deal to him to be liked for something negative. We know that 20 of the murders that he confessed to have actually been linked to other people, so clearly he was lying there. I mentioned before he confessed to fictitious murders, so clearly lying there. And for many of the murders, he simply could not have committed them because he was at a different location when the murder took place. Lucas had an IQ of 87, so that's almost one standard deviation below the mean. That would be 85, so again, close to that. And this puts him at about the 19th percentile. So about 19% of the population would have an IQ equal to his or less than his. But Lucas did have an exceptional memory. We see that many people noted this, including some of the law enforcement officers who interviewed him. So if somebody was feeding him information, he could recall what he needed to recall. I think the best example of this in the series was when Sheriff Jim Boutwell, Lucas, and a few other people were at the site of the murder of a young man whose girlfriend was also murdered around the same time. We see the sheriff asking Lucas questions designed to help Lucas recover a specific memory about the murders. This is referred to as cued recall. The sheriff asked Lucas how far away the girlfriend's body would have been, right? So the male's body was left in one place and the female's body was left in another. So he was really asking Lucas, what was the distance between them? And Lucas said 55 miles. Later, the sheriff said it was 56. So it was amazing how accurate Lucas was. And that confirmed that Lucas committed the murder. Lucas was clearly confessing to a crime he didn't commit. Nobody would confess in that manner. No one would remember exactly how many miles between one body 
and another. Are we supposed to believe that Lucas wrote down the mileage on the odometer when he killed the male, and then when he killed the female, he wrote the mileage down again? Again, I don't think anyone would do that. It doesn't make any sense. Of course, with those two murders, we see that the real killer was apprehended because of the DNA evidence. I think Lucas had the right combination of personality traits and abilities to pull off his manipulation of law enforcement and at the same time to be a victim of manipulation. Which brings me to taking a look at the personality characteristics of the law enforcement officers involved in this case. We see different levels of involvement here. In terms of somebody like Sheriff Boutwell, his odd handling of Lucas's confessions and other things like letting Lucas wander around the jail, giving him codes to some of the internal doors, buying him milkshakes all the time. None of these things, I guess, are technically criminal. I don't know. But it seems like there's more going on here than just incompetent performance. Rather, there seems to be evidence that the sheriff or somebody in that office fed information to Lucas. It really seems to be nothing short of a criminal conspiracy, a desire to close cases while knowing that the real killers are still free. Now, I was specifically curious about this point, this relationship between Boutwell and Lucas. This is featured prominently in the series. It seemed obvious that this was highly peculiar. It seemed unlikely that Lucas could have killed over 200 people and that the credit for catching him and collecting all of his confessions could go to so few people, including to Sheriff Boutwell. Usually if somebody does something criminal or dishonest and you catch them, you find out that they did the same thing before or you see that they engage in the same behavior or similar behavior in the future. While I was watching the Netflix special about Lucas, I remembered another case I researched not long ago about a man named Michael Morton. I don't believe he was mentioned in the series. I don't remember hearing his name there. He was accused of killing his wife, Christine Morton, in 1986, and the case was handled by Sheriff Boutwell. Michael Morton was wrongly convicted of that murder and served 25 years before being exonerated. They eventually caught the person who did it. Several people broke the law in terms of the investigation and prosecution of Michael Morton. It seems possible that Sheriff Boutwell would have been held accountable if he were still alive. Jim Boutwell died in 1993 of lymphatic cancer. The prosecutor of that case, Ken Anderson, was convicted of a felony for falsely prosecuting Michael Morton, although Anderson only had to serve 10 days in jail, which is an incredibly light sentence considering Michael Morton spent 25 years in prison. Ken Anderson was also the district attorney that prosecuted Lucas for the murder of Deborah Jackson, the Orange Sox murder. And this is particularly important because Lucas was sentenced to death for that murder. So it would seem that bad behavior was not limited here to just Henry Lee Lucas. Lucas stumbled upon law enforcement officials that had difficulty following the law. Now, what about the other law enforcement officers that encountered Lucas? Well, many were fooled by Lucas. However, many were not. What's amazing to me is how many didn't really say a whole lot when they knew that something wasn't adding up. Again, it seemed clear that Lucas really didn't kill over 200 people or 360 people or 3,000 people, all these kind of numbers that were thrown out there. Yet many law enforcement officers were willing to believe that all the Texas Rangers involved and the district attorney were simply working good faith. Maybe Lucas was lying about some of the murders, but not about others. But if this were true, then how could you trust Lucas about anything? This is really quite illogical. I think that one of the most frightening things we see on this series on Henry Lee Lucas was really about how few people 
were willing to stand up and say, this doesn't seem right, and how those that did were retaliated against. For example, Vic Fizel, right? He was a DA who had Lucas testify about the false confessions, and he was falsely accused of a number of crimes. Now, eventually, of course, he was found not guilty and won a lawsuit against a news media outlet that covered the story. But either way, he was in jeopardy a long time because of his willingness to take on the law enforcement officers, including Jim Boutwell. What we see with a lot of the people who dealt with Lucas is these people believed what they wanted to believe or what they needed to believe. And there was a lot of confirmation bias going on. They wanted to believe Lucas was the killer. They wanted to believe that he was the person involved in the case that they were looking at. And anything that they saw that pointed to him being guilty, they believed. And evidence that pointed to him not being involved, they ignored. This is actually a fairly common problem we see with any type of investigation. We also don't see much in the way of flexible thinking. And I think this was particularly disturbing. This really stood out in the series. It didn't seem like many people were willing to look at a situation and say, even though I want one particular outcome, the evidence seems to point to another. The motto of many of the people involved in this case seemed to be, somebody has to pay for a crime that's committed, as opposed to the person who's actually guilty has to pay. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now.